I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What's in a name? Or should I say, what's in a name? We all have heard of Watts Mill in Kansas City, but I bet many just think it's the name of a shopping center around 103rd and State Line. Well, I thought it was that until I chatted with Diane Houston about the name, the history of the area, and what some residents still call it today. Well, a lot of us have seen the name, and we don't really know what it means. I think a lot of times we see that around Kansas City or wherever you live, that you see a name of something, and you just kind of take it for granted that, well, that's just what the name of it is. And, of course, we're talking about Watts Mill. I guess some think it's a shopping center. Some think it's uh, you know a, may, maybe a part of town, maybe not. But I think we, we know what it is, but we really don't know why it's called Watts Mill. And there's a great story behind this that shows that basically that was kind of the, the beginning of the western frontier in the United States, if you will, back in the the old 1800s. I know. Can you imagine that this location that is what we consider a parking lot and a shopping center now, Watts Mill, was really the center of frontier activity, even, I mean, as the, basically as the Santa Fe Trail was in its infancy, Kansas City hasn't even really been established. Show toes are just establishing their trading post in what would be now Kansas City. And here we've got these guys that say, hmm, this spot looks like a really great location for a mill, which it is an amazing location. I don't think there's very many people that have been in Kansas City for a period of time who haven't at least seen like the flooding of 103rd Street, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, And also how beautiful the location is just to the east of where Jasper's, one of our favorite places to go, um, where Jasper's is, I mean, there's a there's a waterfall there. So you can imagine what the natural landscape in the valley would have looked like back in the early 1830s. It was it was a prime location for what started as a sawmill developed into a gristmill. I mean, it was it was it was the place to be seen. And, and Native Americans were still trepsing around the area. I mean, it's incredible. You know, I, I, when you're talking about that, I'm closing my eyes and picturing that just in the middle of the wilderness and, and Jasper's yeah. isn't there and Price <laughs> Chopper isn't there and there's no car dealerships there or anything. Mm-hmm. It just is in the middle and you can just kind of see that mill, which became so vital to not only to the really the growth of our country, but to the growth of Kansas City. It was almost like where everybody came and everybody stopped, took care of their business and went on their way. Why did that become such a big spot and a big part of growth in Kansas City? 
Well, let's think about what would have been established during this time period. So the mill, the land is essentially bought in 1832 by two brothers, George and or George and John Fitzhugh. Now, let me um, ask you this. Back in that day, who were you buying that land from? You said it was government. bought by two brothers. So the government basically owned everything and you're just At giving them pennies on the dollars. Yes. So they're going to be the original land deal. So we always look at the original land deals. And then, of course, I always track them through history to see you know, how ownership works. Because uh, back in these days, people were surprisingly mobile. You know, they were going to go to, these guys are coming from usually in this area from, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, they're Southerners. Um, they're actually moving for, for business purposes. Not everybody wanted to be a farmer. They were looking for the next big thing. So you have a lot of movement. And the Fitzhugh's were pretty, they, they were pretty well established. So they had the money to buy this 40 acres where Watts Mill, you know, ended up being. Um, and they looked at this location, they found the waterfall, because you would go out and speculate. It's not like you just went, well, this looks good on a map. Like you went out there and took a look at the land. It's right on the edge of the fr frontier. I mean, just on the border of what would be Kansas territory, which was Indian territory. We have all these Indian reservations. They haven't even been established yet. So it was, it was a prime location because of the fact that not just pioneers relied on things like grist mills and sawmills, so did Native Americans. So when you have to think about that, you've got the Choteau's Trading Post in 1822, and then you've got, of course, Fort Osage in the early 1800s is the real first established, you know, trading with the Native Americans, which is where, you know, business and commerce started here. And then, you know, even when this was established, Independence, Missouri, was built on the Santa Fe Trail in 1827. And this is 1832. So you, if you've got these wagon trains that are just coming through in the uh, Santa Fe Trail at the same time period, they're coming through and, and the Santa Fe Trail would have gone just to the south of the location of Watts Mill. That's where new Santa Fe would eventually be created. Um, they needed supplies. In, you know, Westport Landing's not even there yet when this, this mill shows up. So they're going from the Independence, Missouri area, and then they're on their wagon trains heading into the frontier. This is like your last stop. So people would camp there. There's everything that you need. You've got water, obviously. Mm -hmm. You have a chance to um, mill or get any supplies that you need, and they go off into the frontier. I mean, it was, this is the Wild West. Well, it, it's also crazy to me to think about how many different kind of stops along the way there were, mm -hmm. just from Fort Osage to Westport to Watts Mill to, you know, mm -hmm. wherever the case may be. And they're all within like seconds of each other now. I mean, like now, I guess right. back in the day, I mean, that was like a day's journey to go from Westport down to Watts Mill. Right. And, and, and to give you an idea, and it seems like nothing until, you know, you, you, you run on the treadmill. We were just talking about this, you know, mm -hmm. and, and all of that. Um, at this time period, basically from, uh, from the border near Independence to the New Santa Fe area is 20 miles. So originally where New Santa Fe was, which is 122nd state line now, right? Um, with New Santa Fe was, was 20 miles. So they, it was originally called Blue Camp 20. That's what they called it because that was a place they would stop along the trail. But so you can imagine, and you have to remember, there's no roads. So people, it's not like they're traveling next to each other. You know, they're passing in the left lane, you know, like they're traveling, just going through the countryside. There's not very many farms established. So you can imagine it would be 
yards. I, I might I'm say yards. It would be even further than that. You know, even a half a mile away might be another wagon train, you know, so they're pretty far apart, but settling and making sure people would stop where there were springs and people would stop where there were mills and where they could, you know, trade local goods and what they needed before they would leave. So this, this, this was a very important stop. It was important enough that they started to quickly build this mill up. And these two guys, it's kind of interesting. They end up leaving because they're going to look for the next big thing. The Fitzhughes, uh, who have a pretty good place in early Jackson County history, end up settling in Texas. And what did they build? They build a mill. So, I mean, it's like this was just their operation. And the, the business um, sold, or I should say the, the mill itself sold along with the land to a couple Westport merchants in 1842. So, you know, 10 years later. And then it actually sold to Albert Boone, which we know uh, Boone, if you've ever, you know, swayed by Kelly's in Westport, there's a nice Albert Boone um, information about him. He, he's the one who built that business. Is that know, where Boone's Boone. farm comes from? No, yeah, you know, no, absolutely not. But yeah. you know, you've always you've heard of Daniel Boone. Yeah, um, this is Daniel Boone's descendant, um, direct descendant. So Albert Boone um, operated a, a trading post or trading store out of Westport. Um, he went into the milling business, if you will. He probably rented it out, right? Um, and then again, it sold for the final time in 1850 to a guy named Anthony Benaw Watts, and he came from St. Charles, Missouri. And he had a milling background. So he starts milling there. He's got his family and all of this. He's, he has experience. Um, and then he's got competition. So, you know, at this time, 1850, right, there's more people around. There's more settlements. But people still needed a mill. And he had competition with a guy named Ezra Hickman, as in Hickman Mills. Um, I love that uh, people don't realize that it was originally called Hickman's Mill. You know, like Watts is plural, mill. Mm -hmm. Um, and showing possession. And it was, they, they said when they established their post office, somebody screwed up and that's how it became Hickman Mills that we call didn't, it today. Didn't that happen with Lee's Summit too? Yep. Something like that? Yes. Like, so, so why on the Missouri side did they not understand like apostrophes? Um, I, 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 I always think that there might be something with a little bit of phonetics too in the way, way people pronounce things at the time. Uh -huh. I mean, these are your Southerners. I mean, everything came with an accent. I mean, half of the quotes that I find from some of these old pioneers, I can't help but do with like a really good twang with them because yeah. you know, that's how it was said. Sure. You know, like the Rebs, you know, right. and fellas, you know, you just know that it wasn't, it, people just talked you know, phonetically, sorry about that. They talked phonetically and, and talked in the way that they actually were saying. So um, I think it's just interesting to think about that time period. Um, so he had a son and, you know, I love names. Maybe it's, it's just that they had so many kids that they just, you know, ran out of options. I'm not sure. Names his kids Stubbins. I love it. And that's another one. It was it Stebbins or Stubbins? It, it's spelled both ways. Um, it's most commonly, and I always go to the headstone. You figure that you know the, the family is going to be the one to spell it the way they want it spelled, and it, it really is most recognized as Stubbins Watts. So Stubbins was born in 1838. He's the fifth kid of Anthony. He's basically grown up, right, milling and all of that. But he worked as a freighter on the Santa Fe Trail, and and of course he had to go serve with the Reb, you know, he had to go into the, the rebel army to the Confederacy and go fight for four years. This guy was If you've seen pictures of him, right? Yeah. I mean, this guy's like, exactly. Oh, he looks like he, a Stubbins, you know? Yeah. He does. I mean, yeah. like, I mean, you can't even make it up. I mean, it's like, he's got, he's the coolest looking dude ever. I like, I want to sit down and talk to this guy. Yeah. Um, he's, he's awesome. 
his father actually dies uh, at the beginning of the Civil War in 1861. So the mill probably wasn't being operated while he was away, when Sevens was away. Um, he comes back, and of course, he gets married, and I love it. He gets married barefoot, like right outside the mill. Real romantic. What I mean, what a beautiful backdrop, though, no right? No kidding, though. You're talking about like real romantic, and I'm thinking about this beautiful old mill along a river with a waterfall, right. and like I know. it really is a nice setting. It is. I mean, and I love it because he was really um, in that area. The house, and people always ask me, "Where was the house? You know, where's this? Where's that? You know?" And it's I can only about estimate, and I have some pictures of the old house too. And the house was built by his father, and it was just west of the mill. And again, the, your boundaries are a little different. You can imagine flooding, um, but. I, I, so it would have been on the higher ground, uh, real near the car dealerships is what I was going to tell people. But, um, so, so they, they have their kids, they have three kids and, uh, you know, they're known to have big celebrations. The mill was always a gathering place. So even, you know, people, people always went down there. It was like, oh, I'm going to go with my dad on the wagon ride to go turn this corn and blah, 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 and see all my friends. I mean, it was a real deal to, to go to the mill. And, you know, they were known to have Christmas parties that lasted all the way into the night and all of this. And I'm like, oh, this sounds like so much fun. And um, they're, they're seven people fiddling. Of course, they play the fiddle, sure. right? I mean, Again, Stubbins plays the fiddle. Of course well, he does. It's also the 1800s, you know? I know. Yeah. And some of the song titles are hysterical, like, you know, Fittin' Britches. I'm like, I don't even, I, I don't know. I don't know uh -huh. what that means. Um, but it's really cool. They, they, they have these parties into the night. And, and what also happens, which is interesting with the, the area, is that Watts Mill kind of ends up being the center of activity, which, of course, makes real estate more important around it. Um, and so a town develops there. And this is going to be at the turn of the century in the early 1900s. Um, the town of Dallas, Missouri mm -hmm. is founded there. And there was a post office there for years and, and, and such. And a lot of businesses that were on 103rd Street, um, houses along 103rd Street. The last one was destroyed more, more recently than you would even believe. Um, it, it just became a, a settlement area. And so, uh, be, so Stubbins ends up being known as the Fiddlin' Middle, uh, Miller of Dallas, Missouri. So Stebbins is the Fiddlin' Miller. And um, there's a real common photo of him holding his fiddle, looking all old with this big old beard and probably doesn't have any teeth. I'm, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm pretty sure he doesn't have any teeth. You know, he's amazing. Um, that photo is really commonly hung in the area around Watts Mill today. Um, I, I always laugh when I walk into a location and people take, you know, homage to Stebbins Watts. Uh, Southside Bar has a big big picture of them. Um, I know that uh, Ugly Joe's has a picture of them. So these restaurants and bars, you know, put his, you know, his picture up. And even in the 1960s, there was an old business, um, an old restaurant there on 103rd Street uh, that was called the Indian Creek Inn. And uh, one of the people, longtime residents of Dallas, Missouri said, if Aunt Kate and Uncle Stubbins knew their picture was hanging in the entrance of the Indian Creek Inn, they would turn over in their graves. And the reason she said that is that Stubbins and his wife were dry. These guys didn't drink. So I, then I started thinking, I'm like, all night parties without whiskey? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, wow. But people, they have, you know, you're going to listen to your, your, your hosts, obviously. So apparently they would turn over in their graves if they knew that their, their photo was hanging in a bar. So next time you go down to Southside or whatnot, you grab a cocktail, go, go, go up and, you know, cheers that photo of uh, Stebbins Watts. Well, it, it, it. It, it's really kind of comical about how things start. And, and you look back as to where we are mm -hmm. right now and you look at Watts Mill and you think of, Oh, okay. Fuzzy South now ugly. Yeah. Joe. 
you know, you think of Southside, you think of Jaspers, you think of like all the places that are at 103rd Street Tavern now moving up. Coaches back in the day used to How be. How about like, Gomer's is going in now? Oh, like, is right it? there. Yes. Okay, Gomer's going in Booze. right now. Also, um, like I said, Coaches 103rd, all that stuff that's that, that's now there and, and, and has been for a very long time. You have to think of yourself, well, what started as kind of a party point is still a party point to this day. I mean, right. so you wonder why Fuzzy South was there. Well, people were partying to all ends of the night back right. in the 18th. 1800s, maybe they were playing the fiddle and dancing at that point in time. But this point in time, people are drinking and playing the fiddle and dancing until, until all hours. Exactly. I know. It's kind of a nice homage. I just think it's funny that even in the 1960s, as Dallas was really its own little community down there, um, they they even recognized like, er, I don't know if he liked that, his picture. But then I'm thinking Stubbins was kind of that character just from some of the quotes and the, you know, the information I've learned about him that, you know, would be all right with the fame, you know? Yeah, kind of sure. Like, you know, like I think it. he yeah, I think he likes, I mean, how many pioneers were there back in the day? And, and your name is etched in Kansas City history now. Like, yeah. how cool is that? I mean, I, I'm pretty sure he'd be all right with it. Kind, but, kind of like a precursor to Jerry Anselmo. You know? uh, in, in whose brain? No, I'm just kidding. Well, it, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's a couple of things that, that I, I, I definitely want to touch on. First, first mm-hmm. and foremost, when we look at, you know, the Watts Mill area, and you mentioned Dallas, Missouri, the first thing that came to my mind when I was, was reading about it all is when did Dallas disappear and why did it disappear? Why didn't we, why don't we keep that and, and celebrate that more right. as opposed to just like basically getting rid of it now? Cause nope. I would imagine you ask eight out of every 10, nine out of every 10 Kansas city residents where Dallas, Missouri is, and they're going to tell you in the boot heel or by Joplin or <laughs> there's a Dallas north. County, Missouri. So a lot of people equate uh, uh, when they hear Dallas, Missouri, they're going to assume that you're talking about Dallas County, Missouri, which yeah, is nowhere so near like, here. Like from, from our standpoint, when did that all like basically disappear where we don't have any more kind of history of Dallas, Missouri? There were a lot of old businesses. You're going to get, I always say a blacksmith shop is always what turns into uh, the modern day, uh, you know, uh, gas station, you know, and a place that you get your car fixed, you know, just a a straight up mechanic. Mm -hmm. And they had those businesses along there. That's not those, those things were established. And in something when, when a town is platted, right. A town is platted into its different lots. You're not buying, you know, 40 acres, you know, and all of that, like uh, the early Fitzhughes did. Um, you have uh, those lots that kind of stay connected, which is part of the reason that it was easy to divide those lots into what would become car dealerships down there. Um, it started with one car dealership. That's all it took. There was an old guy, and, I, and, and we're going to have to talk about this uh, again later because it's a whole different story, but there's an old family that lived down in Watts Mill forever, and it was the, it was the last house standing. And so if you, were on, if you were driving down 103rd Street today, it'd be about halfway in between um, Wardle and State Line. And it would be on this, the north side of the street. And there was an old farmhouse there. I remember it. Like, it's not like it was torn down that long ago. It was in the 90s. It was torn down. And the family held on to it. They, like, held on for dear life. Like, this is Dallas, Missouri. This is it. This is it. We're holding on to this house. We're holding on to it. And the car dealership's like, all right, cool. They're building up all around them. And so they made a deal, like, in, the, in I think it was in the 70s or 80s, made a deal, hey, you guys can, you know, you stay here, whatever, but you, will you please let us buy your property, you know, at, when, you, when you pass? 
sure, he ends up living into like his late 90s. <laughs> so that's how it ended up staying in this family for as long as it did. Um, and it, it's, it's just, a, there's a, uh, it was the Bill Crotty was his name. And he recently passed away and he was a real historian and he grew up in Dallas, Missouri. And I was blessed to talk to him uh, several times and have a recorded interview with him. I haven't even begun to do much with for Dallas, Missouri, because I know it's one of those locations that people don't know. But like I said, you have, you have to remember as the city moved South, we annexed. So, I mean, and, and that's actually ended up being, in my opinion, a little bit of a negative to Kansas city versus what happened in like Johnson County, because you have the established Leewood state, Leewood, Overland Park state, Overland Park, you know? Um, in Kansas City, Kansas City, as it moved south, started annexing in. That ha Hickman Mills didn't happen until the 1960s, yeah. you know? So, so Hickman Mills used to be its own post office. New Santa Fe, Martin City, Dallas, Missouri, all of those things got absorbed by Kansas City. When you absorb and you change your name, and we've talked about name changes, and when you change your name, you lose a piece of that pie in that yeah. piece of history. And the people that remember it for what it was, aren't, you know, they end up moving away. They don't like the traffic. They, you know, they grew up in farmland. They don't want to be a part of Kansas city. That's how things change. And it takes special people. They've done a great job in Martin city to kind of hold on to that car dealerships changed that area. Flooding changed that area. Even though it was prime real estate, you can't stop flooding. And as the Kansas city developed and Johnson County developed all of that water in Indian Creek, right? more runoff, that it, more flooding. It's not like it flood. The way we have it flood today is not how it flooded back in the 1800s. Mm. There was a lot more land to absorb that thing, you know, unlike what we have today. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of what happens to old towns. It's, it's sad. Uh, but, and there's not very many pictures showing the old town of Dallas, but we can kind of picture what it looked like by looking at the plat and looking at who bought what and, and what their business interests were. You, you mentioned, you know, Hickman starting his mill. What was the rivalry like between Watts Mill and Hickman's mill? Well, there was no rivalry in the end because, because uh, I mean, essentially, and I didn't mention this earlier, Fitzhugh was even uh, pioneering enough that he imported stones from France to actually have the millstones be really good quality, which is going to already put them above the competition in and of itself. Um, and Ezra Hickman, he built a grist mill and it's five miles away. So Anthony expands his mill. It's like, oh, you're going to build that. I'm going to build one bigger, you know? So that's how that happened. Um, and Hickman mills never had anywhere near the competition because they were just off the beaten path. So Hickman's mill was going to be operating more as a local mill, whereas Stebbins Mill and Watts Mill and what we would call Fitzhugh Watts Mill uh, really developed more because it was also a pioneer mill. It was going to pick up that traffic from people moving. And they did business with Native Americans really early on. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a cool piece as well. Back in the day, and this is again totally off track, but you, mm -hmm. you, you made me think of something. If you wanted to import something from France, like would that take like a year by the time you wrote a letter and got a response? Uh -huh. and like, like how, what was that process? Like that couldn't it have been an easy deal. Couldn't have been easy at all. I mean, you, it's all about who you know. Um, so, you know, I don't even know. How do you know that? How do, how do you, you've never been to France. 
how do you know that they're better in France? Like, I have so many questions. I mean, you have to remember Fitzhughes and things like that. These are these are Southern pioneers. They they'd never been to France, but you know they knew from their experience in the industry that those were the stones that were the best for the business. And I'm you know I'm sure out of the East Coast and through business, you know, different operatives, they're all going to get a piece of the money, right? Uh, they got those stones there, but I can't imagine like how they freighted them that way. I mean, I have no idea. You don't have no railroads. So everything's going to be by water, probably. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, unbelievable. It's really hard to know. I mean, but even early on. And I really remarkable that it was they were able to pull something like that off back then. Right. I mean, it, it's not like it weighed a little bit. Right. I know. I, yeah. I, it, it, you know, it's kind of like looking at Stonehenge. Like, how did they do that? Um, the say, I, I can't answer directly. I just know that even in the early time of Kansas City, you know, people built homes, they just built them the way they're going to build them. You know, there were standard ways to build it like dog trot style and all of these different types of log cabins. Um, and even before brick housing, they were importing, importing houses on steamboats that were like pre-assembled, like, like what we would call like track housing or like, you know, buy your house online, like Sears and Roebuck catalog. Mm -hmm. They had that in the 1820s and 30s. I mean, it was even a thing then. And so some of the early houses that went up in Kansas City were actually made and assembled, you know, assembled in pieces in Cincinnati, Ohio. I mean, it, the stuff that happened is pretty amazing. I mean, I think we don't give them enough credit for uh -huh. how resourceful that they were at the time. And I just love, I mean, there's so much history in that, in that area too. And it's hard to imagine that uh, Watts Mill, they, of course, uh, had a family cemetery. You know, I, and, and you're, uh, you're, people, of course, always ask me, like, is it still there? I'm like, well, I mean, no, but could pieces still be there? Sure. Uh, but in any case, they had a Watts uh, family burial ground. It was at 101st and Jefferson. So, I mean, just north of the old coaches and in between, you know, it, it's it, on the hill overlooking yeah. Indian Creek. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, Anthony was buried there. And I think it's cool that the neighbor, of course, that real, actually pretty famous neighbor was Jim Bridger, Jim Bridger, the old mountain man, uh, Jim Bridger with his Indian wives. I mean, you know, one of Jim Bridger's wives died on, uh, on, uh, the blue river. And so he just buried her there, just left her, said a quick service or whatever. Yeah. escaped out but yeah, i mean later. it's just a different era it's just a different time period and, and native americans wouldn't have had it like funeral obviously what we would have but in any case jim bridger lived an amazing life and in his older age he was totally blind uh which was super sad but he lived uh right by where saint joseph hospital would be today um just over just, so just north i mean it was the next farm over from the watts family and you know he was always gone as a, a lot when he was you know, pioneering and uh, frontier days and doing what he was doing, but he was super good friends with Stebbins Watts and they were very far apart in age. So it would probably have been like a father son relationship. Uh, and so, you know, he, he asked, can I be buried in your family cemetery? It's like, sure. And I mean, St uh, Stebbins, I mean, Jim Bridger was at Stebbins Watts house when he died. So he passes away. He's blind as can be. So they, you know, have a ceremony, whatever. He's buried up at 101st and Jefferson. And he really doesn't, we had a real love of the Wild West 
in the 1880s, 1890s, and then at the turn of the century, you know, it became cool to play cowboys and Indians. Like those types of things happened. And so there's a renewed love of that frontier pioneering spirit. And so it was 1904 when a, a group, I should say, decided that Jim Bridger needed an actual cool burial spot that people like would go and see because he was, he was really, you know, important. He's got a statue in Westport for crying out loud. Super important dude. So they dug him up and they moved him to Mount Washington Cemetery and erected this beautiful grave and all of this for him. And so, you know, they dug him up. And so Edgar Watts, who was uh, Stubbins' son, and he was the next Miller, one of the Millers, uh, you know, he's there and he's got to put the, you know, dirt back where the casket used to be. Yeah. And he finds a jawbone, like Jim Bridger's jawbone, buried in 1881. He's like, huh. Like, what would you do if you found a jawbone? Well, I mean, I know you'd probably come home and be like, Jen, cool, look at what I just found. But wouldn't you, like, turn it in or something? Wouldn't you? I, I, I think maybe I'd just throw dirt on top of it and fill it back in. I don't know. What I, I know. Would. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to – and you don't know they, that they would have known what a human jawbone and, like, animal jawbone look like. It, it's, you know, I mean, this is, like, normal for them. And I mean, I, I mean, not that we wouldn't recognize a human jawbone today. But he just – he's like, uh, puts it in his pocket, takes it home, and doesn't tell anybody. You have Jim Bridger's jawbone in your pocket. So Edgar doesn't say anybody to anybody. And then his dad passes away, which is kind of a sad thing. And so Stubbins Watts, he lives well into his 80s. So the photographs we have of him are like when he's like super old and like the mill is barely, you know, it's, it's surviving and all this. 62 years that dude worked at that mill, 62 years. And he dies in 1922. So, so Stubbins, and he had moved his family burial plot because they, he knew, he could see what was happening. He knew that it wouldn't be long before things absorbed into his community. So they moved to the, everybody, you know, the whole Watts family to uh, Stanley, Kansas. So Stubbins is buried in Stanley, Kansas. Son Edgar's there, you know, at mm-hmm. the funeral. Takes out the jawbone, Jim Bridger's jawbone throws it into the ground oh it with Stubbins and he's reason for doing it. I love this. He said, well, they laughed and talked together. So it seemed the fitting thing to do. All right. So if you go to Stanley, Kansas to there's a, a millstone actually at these, uh, at those, at the Watts mills burial plot in this, in this cemetery, you, you can just imagine, well, part of Jim Bridger's here too. It's just bizarre, but I love it. I love that story. Well, they talk so much, they might as well just be close together now. Like, that's amazing. All right, before we wrap this up, and and I think we need to address this. Why isn't Kansas City considered the gateway to the West when we had all of these outposts and final places to stop before people truly did go West? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. (laughs) I know. Why don't we have the arch? Um, I don't even know that we need the arch, but I think yeah. we need the, the, like, because if you're really studying history, and I know Lewis and Clark and all that happened mm-hmm. and, and whatnot, but when you really think about it, all the pioneers, all the wagon trades, everybody that was heading west, really your last stop on the frontier was here before you went to who knows where, wherever you ended up. It's true. Um, we are definitely, I think when you think pioneer, and I think that's the, the key word here, the pioneer frontier that we know and love and, and envision in this time, in this era, it really is this side of the state. It's this side of the city, is the, or this side of the state, this area specifically where we are, is the gateway to the West. 
But when you look at the earlier history, the stuff that we don't, we, you know, we kind of breeze over the earlier history and you've got Louisiana Purchase, all of that stuff and those first modern, what we call modern city and development, the gateway of, you know, I say to the West or however you want to put it, that really did get its birth in St. Louis. The Chotos, right? Like the Chotos family, their prominence in, in St. Louis. So you have that active trading happening along the Mississippi River, not the Missouri River. So you're talking about the gateway of, and, and rivers were so important. I mean, how do you think Lewis and Clark got around, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, I have a, I struggle with this a lot because I think when we think of frontier and pioneering, we're thinking 1800s. When we're talking about founding and the development of the United States and kind of that idea of moving west, and I mean more in the 1700s into the 1800s, you're looking at more of the St. Louis area. So it's like, I think that it's going to be a natural rivalry then between the two two sides of the state. It's like, who, who, who did it better? Who are the real pioneers? No matter how long you've lived in Kansas City, you can always learn something new about our town. I hope this episode of Two States and One Story taught you something new. I know it did for me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.